Hello, my good friends, and maybe some new friends. Uh, this is Jimmy, and welcome to another episode of the Art of You podcast. Today, we are chatting with the one and only Jim Grant, my father, my best friend and biggest supporter, um, you know, along with my mom, of course. In this episode, my dad and I talk about his upbringing and growing up in Minnesota and Montana, some stories and favorite aspects about playing football at the Naval Academy and what he's learned from his coaches, mentors. We also talk about some of my dad's favorite moments while on deployment and serving in the Navy and also his thoughts, opinions, what he thinks about my life as a DJ producer and this whole Rose Drive brand and this podcast. So I hope you enjoyed this episode. Hit me up on Instagram or Twitter at Rose Drive and let me know what you think about this episode. everybody we are welcoming the one and only jim grant my father to the art of you podcast dad thanks for making time out of your schedule to join and uh, chat with us today hey jimmy it's a it's a pleasure i really uh i gotta say first of all congratulations on the podcast i really enjoyed uh, every episode thus far hope we Thank can keep that much. trend going yeah of course um for anybody that follows me on instagram um, you've already been somewhat acquainted with my dad from Instagram story. He's the one that texts me this mix slaps. So now you have a, uh, put a face to a name on who my dad is. Um, so dad, I know you, uh, you grew up in Morris, Minnesota. Can you talk about what it was like, um, growing up as a young boy in a small town like that? Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Morris was a community of about 5,000 folks in, uh, the western central part of, of Minnesota. And I got to tell you, it was a great place to grow up. You know, that small town feel. Uh, athletics, you know, we played whatever the season was, that, that was a sport that we played. And, um, yeah, I, it was a, just a wholesome environment, and I was very fortunate uh, growing up. Uh, you know, my parents were both teachers, uh, both educators. My mother was a fifth-grade teacher, and my, uh, my father was a teacher and a coach. Um, I got to say my, my mother was, uh, you know, ran a very tight ship, uh, as a teacher, you know, and, uh, but she was also beloved by her students. And I would have to say that, you know, she ran a tight ship at home and was beloved by her, her children as well. Um, you know, my, my dad, uh, as I mentioned, was a coach. He was the, uh, he was the baseball coach for the university of Minnesota at Morris. And he's also the uh, offensive line coach for the University of Minnesota at Morris uh, football team. So um, sports was very much a big part of my life, um, you know, as well as all things school. When you were growing up in Morris, um, what sports did you play? Well, essentially whatever's in season. In the summer it was baseball, you know, football in the fall. But I got to tell you, in Morris, my, my first love was uh, playing hockey, ice hockey. And um, – as like most young young uh, folks in, in Minnesota, 
um, shortly after you can walk and you know, maybe a couple of years, you put on the ice skates and I, you know, my first pair was figure skates and then graduated to ice, you know, to hockey skates and um, a lot of frozen over lakes to uh, practice on. And um, yeah, I, that was my favorite by far was, uh, was playing hockey. How different, um, dad, can you say it is, you know, today, maybe growing up um, as a young kid in 2021, uh, you know, everybody's got a PlayStation and Xbox, they've got social media, they're always on your phones. Can you talk about how different it was for you, you know, always being outside with your friends playing sports and just kind of what that was like uh, growing up um, in Morris and just how different it is now and then? Yeah, I mean, I, uh, of course, have to go by the power of observation here in 2021. And, um, you know, when when uh, one thing during the pandemic, I certainly, you know, have gone for more walks uh, around the neighborhood and, you know, where you hardly would ever see anybody out shooting baskets or playing catch or, you know, a, a pickup game of any of any variety. You started to see that come back a little bit during the pandemic. And, uh, you know, back in the day, that's all there were. That's all we did. You know, as you, as you said, we didn't have the, uh, the video games and all that. So you, uh, you did things live, you went out and played and, and experienced it. And I, and I've got to tell you, I think that uh, you know, there's a certain wholesomeness to that. Uh, and I would really like to see, uh, you know, the country as a whole kind of get back to that, um, you know, get more, more time running around exercising um, than behind a keyboard and, um, uh, playing playing video games i know that um your father my grandfather jim grant as well he, he was a big proponent of everybody should play sports can you talk about how, why you think that's so important and maybe something that you learned from him as with him being an athletic director and also being a coach for your teams absolutely yeah that's that's a great point jimmy i mean my dad was you know as an athletic director firmly believed that uh um well first of all but let me let me let me start off with, you know, he would tell me that he think he, he thought that every young man and, and young woman ought to be participating in athletics. And I and I said, well, why is that, Dad? And he said, well, frankly, you ought to be participating in a sport to compete, number one, and to also have the opportunity to get knocked down. Because uh, he went on to say that, you know, there's a lot of life lessons that can be learned in that three foot trip from being upright getting knocked down and, and uh, having to stand up, dust yourself off and get back in the fray and, and hopefully afford someone with another colored Jersey to learn some valuable life lessons. <laughs> um, yeah, certainly, uh, <laughs> certainly learned that from him. But one other point that when he was, I remember for those uh, that may have, uh, you know, children at, at, at their different ages, he really considered it uh, his job to make sure that everybody played, you know, particularly in junior high, you know, because kids grow differently. They mature differently. And uh, I mean, he would have a teams in the A league, B league, C league. It didn't matter. What mattered was everybody played. Everyone's and, getting reps. Um, yeah. Reps and sets. That's, and that's what life is all about. Frankly, is reps and sets. Um, you need them to, uh, to move along to the next level. You know, a lot of kids that were on the C team uh, in junior high, I wound up playing varsity when they when their bodies caught up with them and, you know, they're able to uh, grow into themselves and, and play at a pretty high level. For everybody listening, um, some background info, Dad, you moved from uh, Morris, Minnesota to Great Falls, Montana, you know, played football at CMR High School there. 
your coach, Jack Johnson, was very successful right when he came to CMR. Um, you know, things were in transition. A new culture needed to be a new culture needed to be made. Mm -hmm. And um, can you talk about, you know, when you're going through the high school ranks, seeing that program go from average or below average to becoming a powerhouse in Montana and what you observed as, you know, a high school player, but then now looking back on those days, like some other takeaways that you might have? Absolutely. I mean, yeah, Jack Johnson came to my high school as I was uh, going into high school as a sophomore. As you mentioned, the, the program had not been, had not been good. And uh, what he did was the lesson that I carry with me to this day is how Jack Johnson changed not only the mindset of the uh, CM Russell football team, the entire school, and quite frankly, uh, the entire west side of that city uh, as to what it takes to win. Valuable, <laughs> valuable lessons. I mean, very similar in fashion to, uh, you know, the way in, when, when we moved to Great Falls, my father was my baseball coach, you know, and there wasn't, uh, there wasn't a lot of, of screwing around. It was all business. You showed up every day. You worked hard. Um, so, you know, when Coach Johnson came rolling in, it was that personified. I think it's the only time in my life I went through three a days, you know, getting ready for the season. Uh, one of his first, one of his first years, the biggest thing, and I, I will always remember this from coach Johnson is changing that mindset. And he had just a few rules. And one of them was thou shalt not be any alcohol consumed during the season. As the season went on, I guess it's about three quarters of the way through the, uh, through his first year there, it, it came to light that perhaps uh, some folks weren't uh, abiding by that. And, uh, when he pulled the string, there were quite a few. In fact, 55 to 60 uh, kids got thrown off the, the team. I mean, that was it. So we finished the season with whoever was left, got ready for the next year. But I'll tell you what, uh, there was no doubt in anybody's mind that when Jack Johnson said, this is the rule and you're going to abide by it, <laughs> by God, you better be abiding by it or you're going to be doing something else. And that was the first step in getting everybody's attention and establishing the program and the mindset and the winning attitude that he needed to establish going forward. And, you know, two years later, he won the state championship. I love that story. I think it's so important for everybody in organization or team to have buy-in to, you know, the leader, the, the captains, everybody on the team to be on the same page. Something I find very interesting, Dad, is the fact that, you know, you play football, uh, high school football in Great Falls, Montana, and you ended up going to the Naval Academy to play, you know, Navy football. Can you talk about that choice to go to the Naval Academy and why you went out of the norm? I mean, I, I would imagine not many people from Great Falls, Montana at that point in time were talking about the Naval Academy. Can you just kind of talk about that choice and that process going to the Academy and committing for football? Yeah, absolutely. I'm, and, and you're 100% correct. There, there, there weren't a lot. In fact, <laughs> I really didn't know anything about the Naval Academy uh, right up until the point uh, of my sophomore year in high school when uh, one of the players from our crosstown rival at Great Falls High uh, went to the Naval Academy as a quarterback. Then I became, became aware. I mean, uh, in Great Falls, is, is a, uh, there was a very large Air Force base at the time, Malmstrom Air Force Base. So there, there were a lot of folks that went to the Air Force Academy because you know, it was a lot of Air Force families there. Uh, but the Navy, that was, that was different. And um, one day I got this letter, a recruiting letter that, uh, hey, they were interested. And 
you know, started piquing my interest uh, a tad bit. And of course, my mother and father were wildly uh, enthusiastic about that. And, and um, when uh, I had the opportunity to go back for a, a trip and uh, see Annapolis for the first time in the campus, I mean, it was a gorgeous spring <laughs> weekend. And yeah, I was, uh, I was pretty much sold at that point. Your time, thinking back to your time at the academy, um, you know, Navy football was really good. Um, you know, while you were there, you had a lot of great teammates, really talented players, um, and, and you had a great coach. Can you talk about, um, you know, one thing that you learned from your coach, uh, George Welsh, that you've kept with you uh, to this day? Well, I mean, there were, that's a great question. And there were several things to, that we learned from Coach Welsh. And, and he had uh, accumulated a tremendous coaching staff. He had brought in some great assistant coaches. Uh, and he himself was, uh, was an exceptional coach. Very much like I had, I had learned from my father and from Jack Johnson, uh, you absolutely needed to show up every day. You needed to bring it, and you need to be both physically and mentally tough to, uh, to partici- participate in, in, in Coach Wells' program. And there, there were times, quite frankly, actually, that he would let us know when we weren't meeting his expectation. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> one day in particular, a practice day that he uh, he viewed as perhaps being rather lackluster in effort brought us all together and was telling us a number of things. But the one thing that I did uh, take away and recall, he was pretty much yelling at us at this point. He said, you never stay the same in this life. You're either getting better every day or you're getting worse. And that applies to Navy football. That applies to when you go out and be Naval and Marine Corps officers. That applies to whatever you're going to do in this life. You know, at the time, being 19, 20 years old, I you know, I, I heard it. I obviously I'm repeating it to you. So I heard it, but I really didn't appreciate it until later on in my naval, naval career. You know, one day I thought, you know, coach, you were right. <laughs> you were 100% correct. Uh, if you're not uh, working every day to get better in your craft or to improve your level of physical fitness or to improve your diet or whatever it is, um, you're getting worse because you're not concentrating on it. Well, it sounds like uh Coach Welsh ran a tight ship and uh, it was kind of, you know, you follow along with what he says or, or you're gone. You're not going to um, get playing time or be, all, you know, be allowed to be a part of the program if you don't buy in. And it sounds like toughness, physical, physically and mentally, was a requirement to be on that team. Can you think of, um, you know, Dad, whether it was uh, during practice or uh, a key moment during a game where one of your teammates or a specific moment that you remember – someone really stepping up to the plate, exhibiting that toughness, you know, in a big play or big moment? Wow. That's a, uh, that's a tough question. I mean, no pun intended, but because (laughs) it's tough because there are so many guys involved in that program that were exceptionally tough. I mean, let's not forget a lot of these folks went off to be, you know, officers in the Marine Corps and the Navy and served with distinction and went on to do other things. And uh, every day was a display of toughness in some regard. I guess cataloging through, uh, through many of them, I would say probably the single biggest uh, display of toughness had to be when we were playing Notre Dame my junior year and we were playing them in Cleveland. Uh, it was our home game, but we played it there because it's a much larger stadium and so on. But anyway, um, our captain at the time, uh, a wide receiver, by, this is our offensive captain, wide receiver by the name of Phil McConkey who uh, could run like the wind. I mean, he was, he was fast. He was shifty. He also returned punts. I mean, he had, he had no fear, zero fear from what I could ever tell. 
And uh, this was a close game. It was the fourth quarter. We were driving. And, uh, you know, Phil, uh, I believe, was on the left side, uh, ran a, a skinny post pattern. Uh, Bob Lashinsky hit him in the end zone. And, you know, and back in those days, Jimmy, the officials didn't concern themselves with targeting, you know, or hitting a, uh, what do they call it, an un, unprotected player, whatever, whatever the term is today. And Phil got just walloped. And this, this guy was huge, just uh, safety for Notre Dame, probably played in the pros for a number of years. Um, and he knocked Phil out in midair, just out cold. But the thing that I recall the most, I mean, more so than that is, not only did McConkie not drop the ball, but the officials couldn't take it from him as he was laying in the end zone, Jeez. Uh, knocked out with his arms around the ball. Wow. Yeah. Uh, again, that's one of, you know, we could sit here for the next half an hour and I could, could give examples, but uh, that comes to mind and uh, that'll be forever ingrained in my mind. What was your favorite aspect um, about being a Naval Academy midshipman or being a Navy football player? Well, without question, the people, you know, my, my teammates on the football team, you know, uh, my classmates, you know, that I hung around with. Um, I got to tell you, we, we can go years without seeing one another, you know, spread all over the, all over the country and we'll get back together. It's like you never left. You know, you just get caught up on kids, grandkids and, and that sort of thing. Um, but there's a bond that was developed there that um, is special, was, spe- you know, continues to be special. And, and um, you know, for that reason alone, I, I'm glad, I absolutely glad I went there and would never change it. Something that I'm picking up on, you know, through high school, through the Naval Academy, and then your time in the Navy, you've always been surrounded by leaders. Throughout this process, it sounds like, you know, you're developing your own leadership style and your own techniques and methods and whatnot. And while you're working your way up in the Navy, you know, building up to being um, a commander, um, then a captain and commanding your own ships, can you think of um, a particular, you know, captain or commanding officer that you worked with that you really felt like you embodied when you, uh, you know, had opportunity to be a commanding officer um, later on? Yeah, um, absolutely. I got to tell you, every, every CEO that I ever worked for, you take something from, whether that's a good thing or it's a bad thing. Like, oh, yeah, I'm going to do that. Or, oh, man, I'll never do that if I ever get, if I ever given the chance. And, and I was blessed uh, right out of the gate to have some tremendous commanding officers to, you know, to mold me uh, as a young ensign and, a, and the JG and um you know, to, and to just go through the department level and, and so on. But I think where it was absolutely critical, uh, particularly for me moving on to be a commanding officer was my XO tour. And, and that captain was uh, Commander Bob Ritchie. And Bob, uh, Curtis Wilbur was a, a pre-commissioning crew, uh, which means that, you know, we're spending a couple of years preparing a crew. There's a, there's a detachment in San Diego and the ship is being built in Bath, Maine. And uh, so there's a lot of moving parts, a lot of folks going, doing training, and then you bring everybody together, get them ready and move them aboard this ship. And uh, I learned a ton. I mean, this was like a graduate level uh, surface warfare course for me as, as the XO for, for Bob Ritchie, because number one, he was incredibly smart, incredibly organized. And uh, he was, was a true leader and mentor. And um, he really shaped me in, in uh, a number of ways. And, 
And I got to tell you, the first time I ever met him was in San Diego when we were just meeting some of the early crew members. And he told me, he looked me in the eye, he says, you know, XO, your job is to make routine things routine. I thought about that for a second. I, well, that doesn't sound too hard. You know, I've been on several ships. I, you know, he could kind of see the look in my eye like I wasn't really getting the entire gist of what he was saying. He says, okay, well, look, you know, we have folks out here in San Diego. We're going to have people going up to the bath main. We're going to bring them all together at different times. And we're going to move aboard this ship. A lot of them have never been aboard a ship. And okay. So now I, now it, now it starts to, to kick in. And um, I, I'll tell you what, Jimmy, truer words were never spoken. They're sim so simple, but it not only applies to this particular ship, but it applies to my life today. It applies to your life today. Um, because if, fr frankly, if you can't get the routine things in your life down and make them routine, you're going to have a hell of a time handling, you know, those curveballs or wild pitches that are coming at you from, you know, from out of nowhere, you better know how to block and tackle. You better have the basics down. Yeah. That's been something that, that I've tried to take with me uh, in every, every job that I've, that I had since then and make sure that the fundamentals, everybody concentrate on the fundamentals, have those down, you know, then we start to get tricky after that. You know, honestly, anything in life, um, whether you're in the Navy, you're running an organization or a team or you're solo entrepreneur, a musician, you know, you have to have a routine to keep that momentum and keep the pedal down and keep making progress. Right. In any given team, I would imagine that you witnessed, um, you know, some people get more praise or more attention, uh, depending on what their job is on the ship, what their role is. Um, can you talk about anybody that you've worked with that maybe, you know, is always showing up every day. They're making the, you know, those routine things routine and they're executing, they're getting the job done, but didn't get the attention or praise maybe that they deserved. And they just kept rolling with the punches and got the job done anyways. Yeah. I, I tell you that I think could apply to about any, any command in the Navy that I was on uh, any ship that I was on or, or uh, any shore commands, but, and I'll come back to that. One, one group in particular uh, seems to jump to the fray to the forefront here. And that was uh, in between my two uh, commands, in between Fitzgerald and Detroit. I, I went to the uh, United States Naval Academy. You know, Vice Admiral John Ryan hired me to be his executive assistant. And it was a tremendous job. I loved it. As, as, part, of, as part of his staff was a protocol office. There were two, two gals that, that ran the office, uh, Jan Price and Ann McConnell. Just wonderful people. The Naval Academy being as close to Washington, D.C. as it is, um, I think besides the White House, I think the Naval Academy has, you know, like the second amount of entertaining dignitaries, congressmen, <laughs> on and on and on. Anybody, you know, folks coming in internationally. And so you needed a very robust uh, protocol office. And these gals did it, you know, as professionally as you can. And, but the thing that, um, and just like in society, I mean, uh, the folks that came to the Academy, I, you know, 95 to 98% of them, probably closer to 98% of them were just wonderful people and uh, love having them. And, and uh, they're, they're wonderful to be around, you know, but there's always that 2%. There's always that 2%, whether it was a staff member of one of these folks or, you know, perhaps with these, someone who, uh, you know, felt they're uh, a little more important than they, than they were. I mean, don't get me wrong. They all had big yeah. titles, but a little more impressed with them, a little more impressed with themselves than they probably should have been hmm. and felt they could treat these two ladies terribly, you know, uh, talking on the phone and 
talking to them uh, about how they didn't like this or like that. And they needed to change this or change that. And they would handle as professionally as humanly possible. But there were some that were just so, you know, that were bad that they came down and told me about it. And about the third one, I turned to him. I said, look, I hope you guys aren't taking this stuff personally because it's, it's not levied at you personally. And they go, oh, one of them came back and said, sir, don't you worry about us. Um, we're not, we're not going to go down to their level. If they want to be miserable in their lives and treat us like that, they're not taking us with them. We're going to continue to have a good attitude and, and get the job done. I thought, you know what? That's a hell of an answer. And that, I think that's something that, you know, all of us in our, in our daily lives, um, you know, when we start to maybe get a little full of ourselves or, uh, you know, they start to take ourselves a little too seriously, maybe need to step back and say, nah, let's treat this, this person the correct way. What, what I love about everything that you've done, dad, you, you've been associated with other leaders. You've worked with people like that in the protocol office. You worked with sailors, you know, the chief's mess officers yep. um, of all ranks and everything. Can you talk about, you know, maybe a favorite moment or um, event maybe while um, you're commanding the uh, Fitzgerald as a commander? Absolutely. Um, I'm going to talk to two very different things. Okay. The first was, um, and this is when we were, we were going on deployment, we were with a, uh, a carrier battle group. It was the Carl Vinson carrier battle group at the time. And we were, uh, we were on our way to the uh, Persian Gulf. As we were proceeded there, uh, there were some activities that were starting to heat up in the Gulf with some other carrier strike battle groups. And as we're rounding the southern tip of India, it was one o'clock in the morning. And uh, the officer of the deck who is up on the bridge and is, you know, my representative while I'm sleeping and at, at all times when I'm not up there, called me and said, hey, Captain, uh, the staff just called over and they want us to, uh, to uh, go alongside the replenishment ship Rainier at two o'clock. I said, Two o'clock this afternoon. He goes, no, sir, two o'clock in an hour from now. Okay, <laughs> let's go get everybody up middle of the night. And wow. what was happening is they're going to give us a full bag of gas. Uh, and it was going to be a dead sprint uh, until we got to the Persian Gulf. And I got to tell you, Jimmy, I had done some full power trials in my life on Curtis Wilbur and, and previously on Fitzgerald. Uh, I think the longest was maybe a couple hours. But this was for three days. And the, the magnificence of that ship, the power that it exuded, the, the wake and the rooster tail that it kicked up, I absolutely was 100% in awe of. More so than that, I was 100% in awe of how that crew reacted. And it was all business. Very little was said. Everybody did what they did, needed to do to prepare to get ready. We were under a fairly tight time constraint. Uh, it had to arrive and uh, perform this mission under a certain uh, time window. We did. We got uh, got to the position. I mean, went absolutely blown through the Strait of Hormuz. You know, we laugh later at the speed of stink. Uh, I got to tell you, that's by far and away the fastest I'd ever gone through the Strait of Hormuz, uh, which is a lot of traffic most of the time. Arrived at, at our position, slammed on the brakes, let things settle out, and executed the mission that we were uh, supposed to uh, supposed to execute. The exhilaration of seeing that happen, of watching that crew in action, executing that mission to was near perfection, was absolutely tremendous. The second part of the second part of that was, and by the way, after as the dust or the smoke was 
clearing, both figuratively and literally, the ops officer in the chain came up and said, reminded me, hey, we're down to 15, what's one 5% fuel. And in the Navy, you never like to even come close to 50, five zero percent because it's, it's considered poor form in all naval circles to run a warship out of, out of fuel. So we went max conserve and, and found a replenishment ship to come refuel us. It was about two in the morning. We went alongside and looked over and there was a string of lights, uh, Christmas lights, because it was now December 20th. The ship was the USS Detroit, which by, you know, by fate, if whatever, five years later, I would be the last commanding officer of USS Detroit. It was just interesting how, uh, how that played out. Absolutely. So after, uh, after all that and leaving, leaving the Gulf, now we're headed for a uh, port visit in Darwin, Australia. And uh, we're, we're transiting through the East Timor Sea with the ship USS McCluskey. I tell you, it looked like it, it, it was a chamber of commerce kind of day, not a ripple on the, on the uh, water. And we request permission to hold a swim call. It, it was awesome. The crew absolutely loved it. I mean, we did everything, got ready. Everybody went swimming. Did you get in the water too? Absolutely. Absolutely. And <laughs> I, I got to tell you, the, uh, it's a little bit farther drop than you would think it is uh, jumping off the flight deck. You know, I took about a few steps back and took a little bit of a run and you know, that <laughs> into the water. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I stayed in for about 10 minutes, just kind of swam around, saw everybody and got back out. And I tell you, they flat didn't want to get out, you know, just like, uh, yeah. just like you, when you were a little boy and I was trying to get you out of the pool. I mean, they didn't want to, they didn't want to leave, but that was a great time. So I remember dad, um, you already mentioned USS Detroit, but when you were um, commanding officer as a captain on Detroit, I know that you put together, you know, a choices manual, a choices program. You make your, all of your choices, right? But in turn, your choices make you. So can you talk about that choices program and that contract? Uh, maybe, maybe a few takeaways from that choices program that anybody could use in a team organization or to apply to themselves. Absolutely. Um, yeah. And thank you for that question, Jimmy. Um, just, just so everybody knows, uh, when I went to be the CEO of Detroit, I was the, I was the last CEO. I mean, that ship was going to only be around for the next year and a half. Frankly, my biggest concern at that point was, well, how do I keep the crew members interested? You know, because a lot of them, you know, they had a lot left on their, their enlistment contracts, you know, after that time ran out. So how do I keep them interested? How do I make them more appealing to go to different jobs in the Navy to another ship or to a shore command or, or whatever it is that they were going to do? I had been a big proponent on Fitzgerald and had learned more and more about it at the Naval Academy about mentoring. And I was convinced that we needed to have an exceptionally strong mentoring program in place, not for the good of the captain. I mean, that wasn't for my ego. Frankly, this was all about getting the sailors to make them better, make them better sailors, make them better people, make them more attractive to whatever they were going to do next in life. So put together this, uh, this program, it was called choices. As in, as you said, you know, we all have choices in our lives and, and those choices dictate, frankly, the quality of life that you may or may not enjoy. We put this, put this program and this pamphlet together, develop this mentoring team, because one of the things that were, that was on the choices was, you know, you choose to find the best mentor available or mentors available and have them hold you accountable uh, and make you work hard to attain your goals. And we're going to talk about goals in just a minute. I'm a firm believer that everybody has some, some genius in them. There's a song in your heart. There's, 
you know, whatever that, that is. And a lot of times people are so bogged down or, you know, perhaps they didn't receive the support they should have at home or, or what have you that they don't see it, but a talented mentor or somebody, you know, that is working with them can see it immediately and help bring that out of them and make them better. This is multiplication through addition, you know, one mentor with one student, it just can, can increase exponentially. Absolutely. We had a, had a strong mentorship program. And I, and I got to tell you, there was some pushback on the mentorship program. Not everybody, you know, some of the folks that, uh, you know, and I'll say there were, I had a couple of chief petty officers who I really wanted to be the, you know, the leaders of this, you know, came back to me and said, ah, captain, you're spoon feeding these kids. I didn't have a mentor when I was growing up, you know, blah, 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 that whole thing. And, uh, like, all right, chief. Yeah, I hear you. I hear you, but I'm not asking you to spoon feed anybody. I want you to work them hard. I want you to uh, use your knowledge that you do you have learned to help to steer them in the right direction. I'm not asking you to give them anything. Um, and I'll tell you, I really like for you to be a mentor and we'll have training and we'll have, you know, how everybody can do it efficiently. But if you don't want I'll tell you, if you don't want to be a mentor, fine. I'll bring somebody out of the first class mess that, that can do it, that wants to do it. And you can stand by and, and watch, but we're having a program. I mean, it is non-negotiable. And conversely, the uh, the mentees like, oh, yeah, yeah, I got this. Don't need a mentor. You know, I've got without saying you're saying I got it figured out. I got life figured out. Well, again, appreciate your input. Not only are you having one at least one mentor, but just talking with you, you're probably going to have two or three. When when we did the training. And, and really got this program going. You can see it take off, Jim. I mean, it was it, it was fun to watch. I mean, the uh, the high levels of enthusiasm, the positivity, it were palpable. And uh, you know, nothing breeds success like success. Frankly, yeah, it played. I think it played a huge role in any success that we we enjoyed in Detroit. While that program was going on, you um, with me um, growing up, you've always preached goals, and I know that goal setting was a huge part of that program. Can you talk about why it's so important to have goals and then why you had two components to the goal cards that you had your sailors um, on Detroit carry around? Sure. I'm also a firm believer in that, you know, what you have in front of you and what you look at all the time is what you're thinking about and what you're drawing yourself closer and closer to. to and to that end, I, I made it a requirement. I mean, this wasn't a do it if you feel like it. This was you would have it on you have a little three by five card or less with your personal goals, three of your personal top personal goals on one side and three of your professional goals on the other side and have it laminated. You know, if I saw somebody in the, uh, in the passageway, I talked to him a little bit. Hey, how are you doing? Hey, let me see your goal card really made it, uh, made routine things routine by, uh, every week there's a division, the spotlight program, which, you know, we look at, at the division, top to bottom, everywhere around it, it culminates in a commanding officer uh, personnel inspection. You know, and I figured by the time I get down there, they've been looked at by a number of folks. You know, they better have their shoes shined, haircut, sharp uniforms, and so on and so on. So I would take this time to have them show me their goal cards. I read it, each one carefully. And at the end, I say, is there anything on here that I can help you with? And of course, initially it was no, no. But then <laughs> after a while, yeah, imagine that. After a while, someone, you know, brought up and said, well, you know, Captain, I really would like to get this damage control, you know, personal qualification 
signed off, but I'm on watch every time they do the check and I just can't get there. Well, you know, standing next to me is this person's chain of command. So it's one, it's one of these, hey, chief, what are the chances we can get Petty Officer Jones relief for an hour so she can go down and see this damage control check? And what do you think the answer was? It wasn't hard to put it together. <laughs> Absolutely. There's a really good yeah. chance, Captain. Hey, great. How about tomorrow? Tomorrow's fine. That worked for you, Petty Officer Jones? Perfect. That was not only for Petty Officer Jones, but that was for the chain of command. Number one, they should have been asking that question before I did. Yep. You know, are they looking at that, at the goals card of their people? Are they, do they understand what they need professionally and personally? They damn sure better. And the more we did it, the more that became evident and really got, really got into it where there was a lot of that. I think we, we made some huge progress. And the one thing that I, I forgot to mention earlier is uh, before we deployed um, on Detroit, we made a big, one of those big hairy goals, if you will. Because um, when I was relieving, I, I had asked the administrative officer to, uh, to go down and look up when was the last time the USS Detroit had won the Golden Anchor Award. And the Golden Anchor Award is really, uh, you know, it's, it's a measurement of how many people you're retaining in the Navy, how many are getting promoted. It's all, it's all about people. It's a people uh, award and really what the climate is of your ship. And he, uh, he reported back the next day that, by gosh, um, the ship had, hadn't won the Golden Anchor Award in their, you know, in the 30, at the time, 33-year history. Wow. So that was it, you know, went out and announced, hey, guess what, folks, uh, we're going to we're going to win all of these awards, all these uh, command and departmental awards. And we're also going to win the the uh, Golden Anchor Award. I mean, there was some laughing and snickering in the crowd. I mean, <laughs> uh, there just was after going through this mentoring and this choices program. And I think them really understanding that it was a team, total team effort. We, as the command, had their best interest at heart, wanted to make them better as sailors and people. It, it took off. Uh, they won the, uh, the Golden Anchor Award. First time Amazing. in ship's history. Yeah, so, <laughs> yeah, that was, uh, that was huge. Excellent. I think it's so important. I mean, we've, we've mentioned it so many times. It's really important to have buy-in from everybody in an organization. Um, we've talked about, you know, you're either getting better or you're getting worse. Um, you know, from, from Coach Welsh, we've talked about, you know, making routine things routine from Bob Ritchie today in 2020, 2021 now, dad, can you talk a little bit about your routine and, you know, what you do every morning? I'm, I'm an early riser. I have been for a long time. In fact, I was uh, a member of uh, Robin Sharma's 5am club 25 years before he wrote the book. <laughs> um, I, I, I did enjoy the book, by the way. Yeah. But great book. I still, I still, to this day, get up, uh, get up early, do essentially the same routine you know, we're go down and, and, uh, I write down what I'm grateful for. That's the first thing I got to tell you. I wish I had started that practice, uh, much sooner in life. Uh, because I think it's, it's, it's extraordinarily helpful, you know, not only during a pandemic, but, uh, every day, a number of, uh, a number of other things that, uh, you know, I want to affirm in my life and, and, uh, just move on. And just, it's kind of a daily reminder. This is the direction that I'm going and, and uh, want to continue, continue in that light. And um, once that's done, I, uh, I run downstairs and have uh, jump on the treadmill. And I'll tell you, I, uh, I multitask on the treadmill because I use it as uh, my opportunity to not only, uh, you know, to, start to get some exercise, which I love to do, but also I, I uh, that's the time I pray. 
and um, you know for the first 15 or 20 minutes and uh, have a number of things that I read and, and so on and, and I just feel much better as I'm as I'm working out and uh, when I get done on the treadmill if it's every other day uh, I'll have my lifting workout that I'll then go over and, and roll right into and um, I mean I I can't remember the last time I did not do that, frankly. It just, it just part of me. And, and um, that's not to say that I can't improve it, because I can. And I'm always looking at ways how I can improve, you know, to make my routine things more routine and better. Uh, for a long time, you've been an avid reader as long as I can remember. Can you point to any books that you've read recently that you really enjoyed or any of your favorite authors that you'd like to uh, just kind of name drop? <laughs> sure. Yeah. I'll, uh, yeah. Let me think here for a second. I, uh, I'm going to name drop a, a guy who I, I really enjoy reading. And I'll also say that I also have met him. I know him. His name is Bob Bodeen. Bob wrote two incredible books that I highly recommend to everybody. The power of who was his first book. And the second one was, is uh, two chairs. I don't want to get into book reviews here, but other than, you know, you asked the author in the books, love both of them, highly recommend them. I also, uh, this year I've been a big fan of Jim Quick's Limitless. And um, I would say that if you have uh, kids in, in uh, high school or in college, or frankly, anybody, I would recommend they read that, help with their reading, help with memorization and, and different things. It's very helpful. Really enjoy uh, Stephen Pressfield's books. About three or four years ago, I read his first one, The, uh, the War of Art. You know, it's kind of a play on the art of war by Sun Tzu. Really, uh, I, I really enjoyed Stevens, uh, that, that book. And then more, more recently, uh, his book, Turning Pro. I think there's a number of things that we've talked about in this podcast that, you know, are, are somewhat highlighted in, in that book as well. One book that I it really kind of got me uh, going or, or, you know, thinking differently was uh, The Power of the Subconscious Mind uh, by Joseph Murphy. Well, I tell you, that really gets you thinking and, and, um, really recommend that as well, you know, because what you're thinking about really does matter. And, uh, you know, I I've talked a little bit about being positive and, and, and so on. But I mean, after I read that book, there's 100%, you know, you've got to be as positive as you can be all the time and try to keep the negative, uh, the negative factors out of your life, such to the point that I stopped watching the news. <laughs> and uh, I control what what I'm going to put into my to my mind. And, and uh, you know, from here on out. I would say that probably the last one is Dr. Wayne Dyer, who I've become a big fan of, uh, you know, his probably his biggest book was Your Erroneous Zone, Excuses Be Gone was another one in, in Wishes Fulfilled. I think he has about 30 books or something. Um, but I really like, like all of those authors. And there are several more that, you know, could go on and on. Um, <laughs> the I've read a handful of those and I can attest and uh, endorse all of them that they're great books real quick. And you, you mentioned your uh, routine and, you know, Stephen Pressfield and turning pro talks about, you know, um, amateurs have amateur routines, professionals have pro professional routines. I love that you practice gratitude and um, you know, you're thankful for you can experience some things that you have in this life and the people around you. But can we also talk about some things that you're thankful for, you know, while being in the Navy that you got to experience, you know, traveling the world or, you know, for example, like anyone that knows you, dad knows that you love to golf. Like, can you, can you talk about any of your favorite moments traveling the world while on deployment or, 
maybe um, a really cool golf course that you got to play at or something? Absolutely. And, and, and I will get into that before I do so though, I, I would be remiss if, um, if I didn't, didn't mention that, uh, you know, while I'm off sailing the seven seas, if you will, um, your mother and, and my wife, of course, was the one that was staying home and uh, tending to you, your sister and your brother and running the house and doing the things that I normally do. And, and um, she was truly the MVP of uh, the Grant family while uh, I was on these sea tours. And, and, and so I'm very thankful and grateful, um, you know, for her, for her doing that. And she did just a, a fantastic job. You know, we talked about a little bit about the Fitzgerald, but I, I was also, uh, my second department head tour was on the uh, nuclear cruiser USS Long Beach. We actually made an around the world deployment and it, it was called around the world in 180 days. Wow. And um, that was fantastic. Uh, I when mean, was this? Pardon me? When was this? This was 19, uh, I'm dating myself. Now, this is like 1989. Yeah, it was absolutely 1989. I remember that because as we were, uh, as we were uh, going over to the Pacific, up the coast of California, it's when they, and uh, you probably remember this, they had a, uh, the big earthquake in the, the Bay Area when they had the World Series playing there. And uh, so it was, that, it was that same time frame. But yeah, this was, this was just a tremendous uh, deployment. Our, our commanding officer, John Pollock, who was, was a mentor uh, and his XO, uh, by the name of then Commander John Harvey, went on to be a four-star Admiral John Harvey, learned a great deal from both of those gentlemen and um, extremely grateful to have had that opportunity. But anyway, uh, Captain Pollock loved to go to Liberty Ports. And so <laughs> we, we went to a lot of, a lot of uh, Liberty Ports on that trip to include uh, uh, Yakuska, Japan, Chinhei, South Korea, uh, Subic Bay in the Philippines. And I'm going to talk, come back and talk about a golf course. Well, let's talk about it now. There's a golf course that was on the Naval Station. There's not a Naval Station there now, but it was called Benictican Golf Course. And it was built out of a jungle. Wow. And, uh, and uh, yeah, there wasn't a lot. Let's just say there wasn't a lot of room between the uh, fairways and the jungle. And they had signs on either side that said, Hey, if you hit a ball in the jungle, don't go looking for it. You know, there's all kinds of snakes and, and other delightful things in there. And, uh, but what they, what they did do is you would hire a caddy. You had to hire a caddy. And if you hit one in the jungle, um, the caddy would hot foot up ahead of you, go find the ball, put it up nicely in the fairway. <laughs> so when you walked up there, the ball was in the fairway. And I got to tell you, Jimmy, I could get alongside that type of golfing uh, yeah. given I spend a, a good amount of my time in the uh, hitting it out of the rough because I can't find it. But <laughs> uh, the other thing that, that jumped out at me was that Subic Bay is just incredibly hot and humid. And by the time you finish, I mean, you just completely drenched. It looked like you jumped in the ocean or a swimming pool and you go in the little uh, 19th hole there and they'd have you drink a glass of lemonade first and put a, a, a frozen, um, a towel on your face and you know kind of wipe down and then uh, perhaps maybe have a san miguel a very cold san miguel beer the local uh, brewery type <laughs> that was uh, very enjoyable i mean also uh and by the way when you're on deployment your favorite golf course is the next one yeah. and uh, i also had an opportunity to play uh, in darwin australia and i bring that up because you know there were kangaroos jumping around the golf course <laughs> wow. so, uh, it was kind of it was kind of uh, cool in a way and it was kind of weird too i mean 
yeah. they jump up, you be up on the tee box and they come up and almost like they're watching you, you know, you almost expect to get some sort of critique. And, um, <laughs> but that was pretty cool. But I also, you know, some of the, some of the best courses were uh, in the United States and um, we spent, we spent one year stationed in Hawaii where there are many, many good golf courses, but I think probably the, the, my favorite other than the Naval Academy course, of course, um, military course is Navy Marine in Honolulu. Uh, I just love that course. And, uh, and we w- had the opportunity to go over to Maui and uh, a course that, that you see on TV, Kapalua, uh, where the pros, you know, play one of their PGA events. That was another one that uh, they would let us, you know, a ship would pull in and they'd let us get up there and play. So really afforded me many opportunities to play on some great courses. So Long Beach, after going to uh, Subic Bay, then we went to Padia Beach, Thailand, um, Hong Kong, Singapore, <laughs> then down then down to uh, Diego Garcia, which is way in the southern part of the Indian Ocean. Went up uh, into the northern Gulf of Oman, then, then started to make the trip, go around Africa. And at that point, we were escorting the USS Enterprise, who was going back to Norfolk to uh, refuel. We made a trip across the Atlantic and went to uh, Rio de Janeiro, Brazil for four days, the four days prior to Carnival. And I got to tell you, if you ever want to feel energy, I mean, those four days building up, that place was just, you could feel it. I mean, these people were getting excited. This was something they look forward to all year round. And oh, my God, it was like this place was ready to explode. But it was it was beautiful to see and just a a beautiful city. And then from there, Bridgeton Barbados for, you know, just to. I guess just because, and that's a beautiful <laughs> place as well. Yeah. Through the Panama Canal and then home to San Diego. Wow. For uh, 180 days. So, yeah, that was uh, that was really cool. That's an incredible journey. I it's crazy that it took a podcast for us to kind of go that in depth <laughs> into that to yeah. that whole journey. But something I really want to highlight that is that you know you're one of the most supportive people, if not the most supportive. You know, you and mom um, yeah. in my journey and with my goals as a a musician, a producer, a DJ, a performer, and now um, a podcast and all my goals. So you've seen everything, you know, even before day one um, from this brand. Can you share with everybody listening your first experience seeing me perform live as a DJ? You know, what you were thinking and what, <laughs> like, kind of what you expected going into that first show and what you thought during it and then afterwards? Well, absolutely. Well, <laughs> Let me step back for just a second and talk about uh, before that first show. I remember when uh, you got your first mixing board, you know, a little small, little small board compared to what you have today. And, yep. and uh, you know, you would you would go down in the basement and just spend hours down there. And I knew you loved music. Um, you'd always had a really good ear and, you know, had, had told me about certain songs and, and bands and things that were good. And by Maybe and large, I go to a Red Hot Chili Peppers concert with me on a school night. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. <laughs> Went to see the red hot chili peppers. That was, uh, that was awesome. Yeah. And, uh, you know, but as you were practicing down there, you know, I'd be upstairs and, you know, at first it was like, mm, ooh, you know, you're starting out a little rough, yeah. you know, let's uh, maybe close the door. And then, uh, <laughs> a little, you know, a little later on, yeah, kids getting a little better, getting better. And then after that, it was like, damn, this is good. It's very good. So, so now let's fast forward to the first time you played and, I believe the name, as I recall, is the Rally in the Alley. Yeah, um, in Baltimore. 
in Baltimore. It wasn't uh, power, even power, power plant power, live. Power plant live, and there were what about four thousand four thousand folks there um, in various states of uh, working over some Miller Light for most of the day, and um, <laughs> yeah, and so. Uh, yeah, fortunately, the promoter saw your mother and I realized, you know, we were exactly this age group and let us sit up on, on top and kind of look down at everything. It was, it, it was tremendous. But I remember when you first came out, I'd never seen you perform live. And, you know, the first song was playing and I just, I, I just stopped and looked and went, damn. And then the second song came out and the, and the crowd just kind of erupted and started, you know, getting into it. And I turned to your mother and I said, damn. The kid is a showman. <laughs> Where in the hell did that come from? Didn't see it. Didn't see it coming. But I, the one thing I could see is whatever it is in a person, whatever their passion is, that was 100% your it. And, you know, from, from that point forward, I mean, you just escalated. And I've had the opportunity uh, to go to a number of your shows across the United States and three or four in Baltimore, I guess one out in San Diego, uh, one in Austin, Texas. What was the name of that, that venue? Um, yeah. Rooftop. Summit rooftop lounge. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I think that might be one of my favorites. I mean, the, yeah, the, that's one of my favorite shows still to this day. Uh, that was Memorial day weekend. It was packed yeah. house. <laughs> it was, it was packed yeah. and the energy was just out of this world. I think that's still um, one of Dave's favorites too. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Dave was there. And then I remember, uh, you know, when I met you and Dave, we went down to Birmingham, Alabama, and we made the, uh, you know, the run over to um, Charleston, South Carolina the next night uh, and love that show. Love them all. Yeah, I, I look forward to when this COVID nonsense is over or not nonsense, but when, you know, when uh, we can get back to doing things and uh, I can get back and you can get back doing shows and I can go watch some. Absolutely. I can't wait to get uh you know, doing shows again. And I'll, I'm looking forward to bringing you on the, the next Rose drive tour. I, I don't think I've ever asked you this dad, but can you pick your favorite song or remix of mine that I've released? And if you have a favorite one that you can pick. I, I like them all, frankly. I mean, I don't yeah. know that. Uh, yeah. I, uh, I gotta say, Jimmy, I, I like all of them, like all your remixes. Um, I think the one minute opposite the other is, is probably my favorite. And I also like all the mixes that you do. I mean, the New Year's Eve mix that you did. I mean, I uh, I listen to that all the time, frankly. I uh, <laughs> yeah, I really uh, I really enjoy that. And I, I like the uh, I like the monthly ones that you put out as well. I yeah, I don't believe I've heard a bad one. Thank you. I appreciate it. I think yeah, I think that one minute opposite the other remix is uh, one of my favorites too. That band has a, a cool sound and. Um, I remember making that remix and it was right before my first Asia tour. And, um, that was just a cool time, uh, kind of on the buildup and building up this brand. Where's one place dad, that you'd like to see me play in person that you haven't yet, or, or it can be somewhere that I haven't played yet. Okay. Well, I'm going to, I'm going to have to pick more than one. I think that's fine because, because I, uh, I want to get up and see a show in Toronto from everything you said about Toronto and, and how wonderful the people are there and, and how they treated you. And, and uh, I'd love to see that. And I also got to say, having listened to your podcast with Anthony Johnson, which I enjoyed immensely when it, when you play out in Los Angeles next, he promised that he would show up and put on a blue man costume and, yeah. and show up and be jumping <laughs> yeah. all around. So Anthony, 
um, I'll be there. I want to meet you. <laughs> and I want to see yeah. you jumping around in a blue man. Yeah. Costume. Yeah. That's a can't miss. I love Anthony. His energy is unbelievable. And um, yeah, you guys could definitely chat about football too. Um, <laughs> is there anywhere else you can think of or that those are the top two? Oh yeah. Well, you know, I, I'd love to see you uh, play in Australia. You know, there, yeah. there are a lot of golf, a lot of golf courses I've yet to play in Australia, uh, yeah. but most of them. Uh, and, and, um, yeah, I, I also wouldn't mind, uh, getting over and watching you in Japan. I love Japan and, uh, you've had uh, two great runs there thus far. And, um, I think that would be a lot of fun as well. Absolutely. Well, dad, I absolutely love to, um, bring you and mom on tour whenever, uh, you know, the world opens back up and we can get back to doing what we do best. Dave uh, is going, we're, we'll get working on Australia and get that first Australia tour booked as soon as possible too. Well, dad, thank you so much uh, for joining us on uh, the RDU podcast. It really means a lot. This was a, a great chat. Um, you shared so many great things with us. Uh, I can't thank you enough for coming on and, uh, you know, taking an hour out of your day to uh, make this happen. Hey, my pleasure, Jimmy. Uh... Hope the folks like it and continued uh, best wishes for your podcast. Uh, loved every one of them. So keep it going. Absolutely. Thank you very much. We'll uh, do something like this again soon. All right. Thanks. Thanks.